Y'all ever tell a joke at work that was so funny HR wanted to hear it? I mean, anywhere you work, you're going to have expectations on you. A lot of times that's laid out in the employee handbook. You know, this is how you'll act toward other people. You do this, you don't do that. The higher up you are, the more you're identified with the company, the more restrictive it gets. You see, nobody really cares what the janitor does in their spare time, as long as it's not too illegal. It's not a big deal. The manager, the vice president, the CEO, now they're going to be examining you many other ways. They might care what you do when you're not on the clock. It matters a little more. We're used to having expectations placed on us when we work. And honestly, those who grew up in a family kind of like mine, you probably had that as well. You'd, your family would be going to some event, and I just clearly remember my parents saying to us, now you behave yourselves, we want you to reflect well on us. I remember my parents saying that to my brother and I a lot. I don't remember them saying it to my sisters, it showed. And we always have expectations. People always are saying, if this is who you're going to be, this is how you ought to behave. So when we come to Christ, when we serve in his name, it's really no surprise that we have expectations placed on us as well. In the book of First Timothy, it speaks, Paul writes about many of these expectations about how we are to be. I want to give you a little bit of quick history here. As near as we can piece together at the end of Acts, here's Paul, he's in prison, he's waiting for his, uh, 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 waiting for his audience before Caesar. And we think... He was eventually acquitted of all charges. We're not sure, but it seems that way. He was eventually released, spent some years continuing to plant churches throughout the area of the Mediterranean, maybe even making it as far over as Spain. Eventually, he'd be arrested again by the Romans, executed under the reign of Emperor Nero in about the mid to late 60s AD. During this time, tradition held that Paul, as he went around, he was in the area of Macedonia around the year of 62 when he wrote a letter to his protege, Timothy, who was serving at the church in Ephesus. We meet Timothy a few times in the book of Acts. This first letter to him we have, and we call it 1 Timothy, for obvious reasons. We have two letters, and one of them has to be first. This is written by an older minister to a younger one. This letter deals with issues that face church leaders. A lot of times people will say, 1 Timothy, that's really a Christian leadership manual. That's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it, even though it does address a lot of issues for church leaders. It's more than that. 
First Timothy, like many of these epistles, it's very practical, especially so First Timothy. Because it's talking about how are leaders to serve the body of Christ. What are they to do? How are they to be? What ought to be going on in the church? Because leadership in the body of Christ is not like leadership in the world. Yes, we have tasks to perform in the church, but we are not singularly task-focused. We have more concerns than just getting the work done. Yes, there is authority, but that authority is exercised in service. So to this young minister, and by extension to us, Paul directs us beyond the ways of the world. You will notice that in many of these New Testament books. We are called beyond how we are. We are called from this world in which we grew up into the ways of Christ. He points us to the Christ who died for us, who reigns even now. He reminds us we are not just to serve God, we are to reflect God. We're not just to do God's work, we're supposed to be like Him. You can do somebody's work without having anything in common for them or with them. You can mow their lawn and be a completely different person. Fix their car, prepare their meals, do, th- do whatever for them, and have nothing whatsoever that is like them. But when we serve God, Paul tells us we are to reflect our holy God. It is not enough for us to do God's work, we must be like Him. And he really gives us two areas throughout this letter where we are to reflect God. Now, as you read through 1 Timothy, one theme that keeps popping up, and it pops up in a lot of the later New Testament. When I say later New Testament, I don't just mean the stuff in the back. I mean the books that were written later. You know, some of them were written earlier, some late. You know, this would be 1 and 2 Timothy, the the letters of John, Jude, Revelation, the ones that were really written kind of at the end of the first century, toward the end of it. One of these themes that keeps popping up in these books is false teachers. Now we have already seen in the book of Galatians that there were those who were trying to draw Christians back to Judaism. They were encouraging obedience to the Old Testament law. They were saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be a Jew first. Yes, Jesus is nice, but how about that law? If you're going to follow Christ, you have to follow him through the law. And essentially what they were meaning was, Jesus doesn't save, the law saved. That's why the book of Galatians was written. But as time went on, as Christianity spread, you had Christians who had nothing to do with the Old Testament law. They weren't Jews. They didn't grow up in a Jewish system or a Jewish area. Now you have Christians who who are solid Gentile through and through, steeped in Greek philosophy from their birth. And And the false teaching that started creeping in was a little different because as... As you started getting more churches in more places, you had people who thought, you know, I can run my own con game here. I can get into these churches, I can do my thing, and I can have a pretty good life. Now, nowadays, it's pretty easy for us to back check somebody. If I've got somebody who wants to preach here, I can check very easily. Is this person correct? Do they have a screw loose? 
Sometimes they say, yeah, there's a screw loose, but Chuck's really still a good guy. No, it, it, <laughs> Back then, you know, when communication, you have to send a letter, and it might take months to get there and months to get a reply. This person's been there, done the damage, moved on. And they would twist and distort Christ as they profited from their lies. So Paul reminds Timothy, our beliefs matter. We need to believe that which is true. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he points this out. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul does bounce around in topics in this letter. For the, the letters to Timothy are not like, say, Romans. In Romans, Paul's got a good train of thought. It's hitched up. It goes from the engine to the caboose very, very, you know, uh, in a very, very concrete, sequential manner. You get into 1 Timothy, and that train is running on a bunch of tracks, boxcars everywhere. So if you read through 1 Timothy, he'll talk about something, then come back to it, and then go on to something else and come back to it. But he talks a lot about our beliefs and how we need to believe correctly, that our beliefs should be a reflection of God. Because false beliefs undermine our faith. Now, I do want to point this out. We are not saved by 100% perfect belief. You will not arrive at heaven to a test. If there is a test, there's one question, and God already knows the answer. Do you believe in Jesus? There's no number two pencil needed. But sometimes we can act as though, well, we've got it all correct. That's a pretty arrogant thing to think that we perfectly know all the truth of God. Now, I've got theological beliefs. I would have different ones if I thought the ones I held were wrong. But I am pretty sure that somewhere I am wrong. But here's the thing, even though we're not saved by perfect belief and having everything correct, some false beliefs can erode our faith in Christ. Some of the ones that were circulating and would circulate back in that day were things like, well, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. 
Well, if that's the case, if Jesus was a phantom or a ghost, how could he die for our sins? He was crucified by the Romans, not zapped by the Ghostbusters. My pilot was not washing his hands saying, who am I going to call? But if Jesus did not die, we are still in our sins for we have no sacrifice. That's a problem. And if we believe that... We have Christian beliefs without any foundation underneath them. It's going to crumble. Or maybe we might believe, well, the Bible isn't the word of God. The Bible is just words of man about God. Well, if that's the case, how can we rely on any of it? How can it be authoritative? It doesn't really matter then. They may be wise, but maybe they were wrong. And we have Christian beliefs without a foundation again. There are some beliefs that if we are incorrect, we're going to have problems. We're not talking about different opinions about the return of Christ. We're talking about people who claim things like sin doesn't matter. There's false sources of salvation where we're saved by following rules instead of following Christ. Things like that. And this kind of false teaching is no surprise because Paul points out that the Holy Spirit has revealed this. He says, we ought not to be surprised. The Holy Spirit told us folks just going to go running after anything. There are things that we would rather believe than the truth of God. People will go chasing after falsehoods. In so doing, they will leave the faith. Friends, I've seen it happen. If you've been in Christ for any length of time, you've seen it happen. It's always sad. It's always a tragedy. What it is not is a surprise or a shock. The source of these falsehoods is indeed supernatural. Satan is called the father of lies for a reason. Is Is it any surprise to us? His minions would plant ideas in the minds of the easily swayed that he will arrange for people to go forth spouting untruths, things that will undermine our faith. Friends, Satan wants you to fail. Some say, oh, Satan's just a silly idea. No, friends, Satan is a real being. God talks about him as though he is real. Satan, or Jesus talks about him as though he is real. At various points, we see him interacting with God. Friends, he is real. He is powerful, and he is very good at what he does. Sometimes I think our portrayals of Satan are not helping us, because we get that guy with the horns and the red suit and the tail and the pitchfork, and he just jumps around, Oh, he is way more subtle than that. And he slips these falsehoods in. Falsehoods we might want to believe because the teachings of Christ are not what we are inclined to do. Did you ever notice that? Love your enemies. Who wants to love their enemies? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. Change our behavior? Don't do the things we might have liked to do? Who who wants to give that up? I tell you, I read the Bible. I see God saying things sometimes I wish he didn't say. 
But when I see things in the Bible that I disagree with, you know what I know? I know I'm the one in the wrong. God, I wish you didn't say that, but that's my problem, not God's. So we have to be aware we are going to hear lies, things, falsehoods that will try to draw us away from Christ. And they are going to be things we want to believe. Teachings that we would prefer even though they are false. We've got to be careful. Paul even gives an example. He says, there's people arguing about certain foods. He says, our attitude needs to be about less about food rules and more about giving thanks to the God who gave it to us. Where's our focus? Is it on God or is it on the minutia? We, we have a saying, don't major in the minutia. Don't get so wound up in the little stuff that doesn't matter. You know, theologians will argue about how many angels will dance on the head of a pin, and some will say a whole bunch, and others say, oh, I don't think angels dance at all. And others will say, well, it can't be too many because they have to be three feet away to leave room for Jesus. We'll argue about these things that don't matter. But how do we deal with this false teaching? How do we deal with people spreading lies? The answer, the antidote to false teaching, is good teaching. The antidote to lies is the truth. You might say, well, people still believe lies. Well, yeah, you can't make people believe something. You can't make them think something. can't force people to believe what is true, man. If I could force people to believe what the Bible said, my job would be way easier. We'd have a lot more people in here for starters. Can't do it. But if we teach what is true, we have done our part. It's interesting sometimes to look back at the Old Testament prophets to see what God told them to do. God did not go to Ezekiel and say, Ezekiel, I want you to preach to these exiles, these who have been taken out into Babylon. I want you to go out and talk to them. And because we use modern metrics around here, I want you, as you speak, 40% of the Israelites you talk to need to stop caring about Jerusalem and the temple. They need to focus on where they are. 40%. Not going to even ask that half of them do. 40%. There's your metric. We will have a review, Ezekiel and performance benefits and bonuses if you meet it. Doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, God often seems to set his prophets up for failure. He said to not just Ezekiel, but to Isaiah, you're going to go and speak to them and they're hard-hearted folks. And you'll talk to them and they ain't going to listen. But he said to Ezekiel, you know, what they do is on them. Your job is to go forth and speak my word. If you withhold my word from my people, Ezekiel, that's on you. I will hold you responsible. But if you go and speak and they turn a deaf ear and a blind eye and they don't hear it and they don't consider it, that's on them. Your job is to speak the truth. Friends, it is our job to believe and to teach that which is correct, that which is true. No, we can't guarantee that people will believe it. 
We talk about Jesus as the great teacher, the best teacher. Not even half of the people who listened to Jesus believed. Matter of fact, one of the 12 that followed him didn't believe. If Jesus wasn't going to force people, if he couldn't make them believe, if he's not going to get everybody, why would we think otherwise? Man, I am not better than Jesus at this job. I will guarantee you that. But still, we, as we follow Christ, must reject the falsehoods. Our beliefs must conform to God's truth. To do our very best as we look at his word, as we study his word, to see this is what what he wants us to do. Because believing God's truth will shape us to be more like him. We'll, We'll get to that in a moment. But if we're going anywhere with God, we've got to believe correct things about God. We have to know that our hope is in Him. He is going to save us, not our actions, not our rules. Friends, we are saved by the blood of Christ and by our belief in Him. But believing properly is step one. Proper beliefs should lead to proper actions. And Paul points out that it's not just believing properly. We also need to be godly. We need to be godly because we belong to God. In chapter 3, he says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. When Paul gets to this point in chapter 3, talking about how we ought to behave, he's just been going over the conduct expected of people in certain roles in the church. Friends, our behavior needs to reflect God. He talks about overseers, we call them elders, talks about deacons, people who serve in other ways, and says this is how they ought to be, but here's the interesting thing. The conduct that is expected of them is no different from the conduct that is expected of any mature Christian. We are never able to say, well, I don't want to be an elder. I'm just here to sit in the pew. So I don't have to reform my thinking that much. I don't have to be that godly. I don't need the full working of the Holy Spirit. I don't need to know all the word of God. I'd like a half pound of God, please, and that's it. Just give me some. I'm not going for those roles. I don't need everything. You know, one of the best things that ever happened to me in school is... When I decided I was going to become a preacher, you know what preachers don't really need? Advanced mathematics. My sophomore year in high school, I took Algebra 2 and Trigonometry and never took another math class in high school. It was 
awesome. <laughs> My junior year, while everybody was doing pre-calc, senior year, everybody doing calc, I'm in classes like geography. I was able to have a little more, you know, just have a little more fun with my classes. I didn't need it. So I didn't take it. Friends, we don't get to sit here in church and say, well, I'm not going to be an elder. I don't need self-control. I'm not going to be a deacon. I don't have to be selfless. No. The way Paul describes it, those in leadership ought to be mature Christians. They ought to evidence change from sanctification, that working of the Holy Spirit within us that makes us more like Him, more like God. But every Christian ought to be on that same path. Now, it is possible... When we look at some of these books that deal with leadership, like 1 Timothy or Titus, to hammer it so hard that we start thinking that God wants the leaders of his people to be perfect. I heard once about a guy who was preaching in a church, preaching those passages, and eventually all of his eldership resigned because they hammer, he hammered it so hard that they said, I, this isn't me, I can't do this, I shouldn't be doing this. Friends, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. You do not have a perfect preacher. We do not have perfect elders. We do not have perfect board members. We have no perfect people here. There's been one perfect person. We worship him. So if you come here and you're expecting perfection out of everybody, I am sad to disappoint you. But I guarantee you're not perfect, so why should you expect it from others? But our leaders should be attaining a measure of maturity in Christ. It should be evidenced in them. They should recognize they are on this path and working to this end. But whether in leadership or not, Christians should be becoming like Christ. He says, Tim, I want to visit you, even if I can't. I'm writing this so you know how things should be. Because in the church, we are in the household of God. The church, friends, is not a social club. It is no mere organization. We are the body of Christ here on earth. The children of God gathered together to perform his work here. We are not a business. We are not a government. We are the living, breathing body of Christ. We've been adopted as children by the Father, but we have not been brought into his household to act like children of the devil. Sometimes Christians can make that mistake. We can think, well, I'm now, I now belong to God. That means I'm fine. And they wreak no end of havoc in the church. Friends, we are to be godly. We are to be like God in every way. He is our Father. He has adopted us. There's going to be a little bit of a family resemblance. Now, gentlemen, I want you to try something later. 
When you're sitting at home, your wife does, does something, I want you to look at your wife and say, Honey, you did that just like your mother. Yeah, I see a few, a few smiles in the women. I, yeah, that, that may not work out real well for the guys. Yeah, I got a few of you men looking at me with kind of giving me the old hairy eyeball, like, son, you just, uh, you know, you, you, that, that, that ain't going to work out the way you think. I get it. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm kidding here. But the truth is, we're like our parents, aren't we? Hopefully in a lot of good ways. There's always things they pass down to us we wish they hadn't, but there's probably some good characteristics they planted in you as well. Friends, we have a Father in heaven. We ought to be showing a family resemblance to Him. It's going to come out over time. It will take a while. But we need to be like Him. We need to be godly. That godliness, it's explored time and again throughout the New Testament. It's a way of conducting ourselves that brings honor and glory to the God we claim to worship. In short, are we behaving as God wants us to behave? Do we look like Him in our actions and our thoughts? Paul doesn't go into detail here. This is a concept Timothy would have known, so Paul doesn't really have to describe it. But he does call it a mystery. The mystery of godliness. Now, oftentimes when we think of a mystery, we think of maybe the guy with the weird hat and the pipe saying the butler did it. Or three teenagers and a dog in their van discovering it was old Mr. Jenkins the entire time. A mystery is something for us to find out. But in the Bible, a mystery is something that has been hidden for us. Something that we would not and could not ever know except that God reveals it to us. How would we know what godliness is if God didn't show us in His Son Jesus? Where would you see godliness in this fallen world? It's not on display anywhere. I think oftentimes a lot of the reason we don't understand sin is because we don't understand holiness. And we don't understand holiness because we live in a sinful, broken world. It's just the background of, what, of our existence. So likewise, we can't understand godliness except God shows us. It has been revealed to us completely in Christ. Are we reflecting Jesus in our actions? It's a constant theme throughout the New Testament. We who have been redeemed by him and believe in him ought to behave like him. It's a long, drawn-out process reforming ourselves. But we have to be involved in it. We have to be working on it. It's going to take a long time. You will not completely become like Jesus in this world. That's just how it is. But bit by bit, things in our lives will come to our attention. We'll say, you know, maybe I'm not, I'm ready to see that I'm not godly here yet. It's like cleaning your house. You don't work on every room at once. You might work on one, then the next, then the next. And sometimes as you clean things, you come back and you find, oh, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't get it all done in here. I got to come back and do a little more work. 
Sometimes, friends, in our lives, we realize something that, oh, I'm not like Jesus here yet. I may have followed Jesus for decades, but I'm still working on this. And when we find it, our proper response is not to dig in our heels and exercise our stubbornness. To say, this is how I am. I am not going to change. To set our faces, harden our hearts, fold our arms, and say, this is me. And Jesus taps us on the shoulder and the Spirit works in our hearts and says, no, you need to be like me. When that happens, friends, we need to be humble before the Spirit that convicts us, repent of the sin that has bound us, and try harder to be like the Christ who has died for us. Remember when I said these things that God teaches us are not things we want to do? Sometimes we have to bend our stiff necks and say, God is right, I am wrong. I've had to do it. If you've followed Christ for any length of time, I know you've had to do it. But we are children of God. We are to be like God, and we need to be like God by focusing on the truth. You can't be like God if you believe falsehoods that draw you away from Him. Our world will tell you all kinds of things about God, none of which is true. But God tells us about God and we can trust Him. Focus on His truth, know His truth, and change your behavior. Whatever role you have, you may not be a leader, you may never be a leader. But God expects every last one of his children to act a certain way, to be like him. Friends, that's a long path to take. There's a lot of work to be done. But that's the road we're on. We belong to him. Friends, let's be like him. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We praise you for, Father, you have given us your truth. You have given us your word. You have given us your son. Lord, help us to follow him, to do as he would have us do. Lord, soften our hearts, bend our necks, and change us, we pray in the name of Christ.